This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Uno soy un árbol. Un hombre desnudo. Un soldado verde. Un niño. Es el elegido. Tratela, chaval, tú estás loco. Estoy hasta los cojones de la pensión compensatoria, de los jueces y de la bruja de su madre. ¡Aparte, señora! ¡Abre! Silvia, perdona. A ver, me, te pregunto yo lo que le das de merendar al niño. Bienvenidos estudiantes. You have hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Bradford Lorick. And I'm Eric Winnick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because two of us are going back to Escuela today, as it were, to learn something new. And these muchachas will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, or for the purposes of this show, su profesor de películas, too, making you nuestro novato de cine. Joining us today to discuss the 2013 horror comedy, Witching and Bitching, also known as Las Brujas de Zugaramurdi, is a very special guest all the way from San Francisco, California, our pal Sintra Wilson. Sintra is a culture critic, author, and former fashion critic for the New York Times. Her books include A Massive Swelling, Celebrity Reexamined as a Grotesque Crippling Disease, the novel Colors Insulting to Nature, Caligula for President, Better American Living Through Tyranny, and Fear and Clothing, Unbuckling American Fashion. Her weekly Substack slash podcast is free at Sintra.substack.com. Thank you for joining us tonight, Sintra. How are you doing and what are you up to these days? You know, stuff's good. Holidays, doing a Substack, doing this and that. Just turned in an op-ed to the New York Times. Maybe they'll run it. Could be amazing. <laughs> Um, so, Sintra, um, the first thing we'd like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre, and do you have a favorite horror film? Wow. You know, I was never much of a horror aficionado, but I have, like, little nieces and nephews aged from 6 to 11, and they love horror movies. So I've been sort of slowly kind of develop my palate sort of like if you marry somebody who who grew up in Arizona you have to learn to eat jalapenos 
Um, mm. uh, so, so I've been I've been moving toward the horror genre, but I I do have an instant liking, and I I do rather love Korean horror movies, and uh, those those are those are kind of what pulled me into the genre of the whole and. Uh, I, I think that my favorite horror movie right now is a Korean horror movie called The Wailing, which I think I forced Bradford to watch one time. Absolutely. And yeah. I will also point out, Sintra, that one of the first times that you and I ever hung out one-on-one, you invited me to your amazing place where we watched the Korean horror film Thirst. Get um, out of town. Oh my and God, I'm so glad that you remember that. The first thing you did was hand me a crossbow and make me shoot L. Ron Hubbard uh, on the cover of a book. Oh my God. That was my favorite thing to do back then. I got this really advanced handheld crossbow and I used to take it with me on vacation just so I could shoot metal hotel doors. As one does. As <laughs> like one, one does. does. The Trump Atlantic City has a door. Full of holes. <laughs> <laughs> Students. All right, so um, let's dive right in. Let's uh, let's discuss what this film is about. And Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of your patented brief, spoiler-free synopses about witching and bitching? Let me see if I can do this in under an hour. Okay. <laughs> Determined to make better lives for themselves, Madrid Town Square mascots Tony and Jose, in their guises as a silver-hued Jesus, and a green-skinned toy soldier rob a shop specializing in the exchange and purchase of gold. Joined by Jose's son, Sergio, who has forsaken his homework for a day with dad, the men make off with countless rings and other gold trinkets, commandeering a taxi driven by Manuel and containing a passenger who just wants to get to Badajoz. Their goal? Get to France. Safety and prosperity. Just one problem. Sergio left his backpack in the store, and his notebook has Jose's address on it. It soon becomes clear to Jose's wife, Silvia, that her son has been involved in a robbery and is being pursued through the country. She jumps in a car and joins in the pursuit herself, only to be followed by two cops, Calvo and Pacheco. Soon, all wind up in the Basque town of Zugaramurdi, which, legend has it, is the centuries-old home of a coven of brujas, witches posing an almost insurmountable obstacle to the men's frantic escape. Wow. Talk about insurmountable obstacles. Summarizing that film succinctly Uh, was nearly an insurmountable obstacle. And the funny thing is that's just the first half hour. Well, you've done an excellent job, Mr. Winnick. I I also think that you did a glorious job on, on summarizing that movie without spoiling anything. See, Thanks. he's, he's you, very good at what he does. Um, so let's talk about who made this film and who's in this film. Yes, this film is written by the team of Jorge. <laughs> Ready for this? Gerke Echevaria. So we're just going to call it that. 
And it's Alex, like pronouncing the name of a town in Wales. It's literally the longest <laughs> last name I've ever seen. Okay, so it's Jorge and Alex de la Iglesia, who have a long history together, having collaborated on The Day of the Beast, The Oxford Murders, Furpicked Crime, Mutant Action, Dying of Laughter, 800 Bullets, The Baby's Room, Commonwealth, The Bar, Forza Crowd, and Perdita Durango, a.k.a. Dance with the Devil, which was co-written by former David Lynch collaborator Barry Gifford. On his own, De La Iglesia also directed the film The Last Circus. Now, Bradford or Sintra, have either of you seen any of these films? Sintra. No, but I'm dying to. Dying to. They all have such great titles. And after seeing Witching and Bishop, I'm a fan. Okay. Um, I have seen uh, The Oxford Murders, um, which has an all-star cast, but doesn't amount to a whole lot. Though, I mean, it is an enjoyable watch. Um, yeah. And The Last Circus, which is uh, aesthetically tied to the sort of look and feel of witching and bitching. Uh, and uh, actually, the two films share a couple of uh, cast members. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, so Witching and Bitching features a sprightly ensemble, uh, including an entire coven of Spanish superstars, including Hugo Silva as Jose, Mario Casas as Tony, Jaime Ordonez as Manuel, and as Eva, Alex de la Iglesia's current wife, the aptly named Carolina Bang. It's spelled B-A-N-G. It's probably pronounced bong. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's either like bang, bang, bong, or bong. I love bang. Okay, Maybe I like we should bang just too. call her Carolina Bang. Carolina, She's Carolina bang. bang to me. She's Carolina um, Bang Bang. Listen, in addition to Carolina Bang and all of those other fine performers, uh, the cast also features the exquisite Carmen Maura, star of many Almodovar films, as Graciana, uh, the incomparable Tedele Pavez as Marichu, the irresistible Macarena Gomez as Silvia, the surprisingly unannoying Gabriel Delgado as Sergio, and <laughs> finally, the simultaneously cross-eyed and wall-eyed Enrique Vienne as Marty Feldman. Oh, and, and also, <laughs> there is an unsurprisingly surprising performance by Javier Botet, who's known to a lot of horror audiences for his roles in films like It and It Chapter 2, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Insidious The Last Key, The Conjuring 2, and uh, Mama uh, as the l very loose-skinned Louise Me. Now let's just, let's just drift back for a second because I want to ask you about Javier. Javier Botet? Botet? Um, Botet. Botet. You say he's in all of these films. Now, I was seeing him for the first time last night. He is a very skinny man. It's true. He plays a lot of creature perform, you know, uh, creature roles. Mm. Okay, so who was he in It? Uh, he was the leper in It. Uh, I think he also played Mrs. Kirsch in It Chapter 2. Who's, uh, as who's well the as leper? Who is the leper in It? The leper who, um, who, who approaches... Eddie outside of the house on Niebolt Street. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Now we did we did cover this film last year, and I am not remembering that scene at all. Well, okay. You might be spending too much time with your Carolina Bong, Mr. Winnick. <laughs> well, that may be true, sir. Absolutely. Touche. I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> now it is time for Math Club and Debate Society. And this, Ooh. of course, is the portion of the show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. And then, of course, we make fun of the critics. <laughs> all right so but whichever which, the culture critics never never so this film was released in spain on september 27 2013 and was first shown in the u.s at austin fantastic fest one week earlier its worldwide gross was 7.4 million dollars and the film currently holds an impressive 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, which you might say is as fresh as a summer's eve. <laughs> How would you know? <laughs> ben Kenigsberg of the New York Times in a review titled, Jesus, You'll Be the Stick-Up Guy, SpongeBob, You're a Lookout, said, known for his genre pastiches, the director, Alex de la Iglesia, rarely lets the pace flag, and the buddy comedy, gross-out humor, and horror elements make for a harmonious mix. Witching and bitching is mostly good fun, though it doesn't sustain its anarchic energy. The busy, effects-laden climax seems out of proportion to the human comedy and frog bloodletting otherwise on display. While Jonathan Holland of The Hollywood Reporter opined, Alex de la Iglesia has experimented with various genres down the years, but the shamelessly crowd-pleasing witching and bitching is a return to what he does best, pure mayhem. All the hallmarks <laughs> of the director's groundbreaking The Day of the Beast are back on display here. High energy, unsubtle and tasteless but often hilarious satire, and an ability to transplant the wild comic book imagery of his imagination onto the screen, now armed with a battery of new technology. While the AV Club stated, the movie is sustained by its director's sense of tasteless pop cultural fantasy, opening with a pictorial history of witchcraft that concludes with a photo of Margaret Thatcher. This film did not show up on the list of 2014 Oscar nominees, but it was nominated for Best Foreign Film at the only award show that matters, the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. Uh, it also <laughs> won eight Goya Awards, Spain's equivalent of the Academy Awards, including a Best Supporting Actress Award for the incomparable Tedele Pavez. And now's our opportunity to Ask the Professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case and every case is you. Well, before we get started, I just want to confirm, Sintra, you had not seen this film before we contacted you. That is correct, sir. Okay. So back to you, Professor. Tell us what fever-induced stupor 
led you to place this film on the syllabus this week? <laughs> well, um, I think it's a great watch. I think it's extremely well made with delicious performances, stunning cinematography. Um, it's like four movies in one. Uh, and Eric, I think you may find it perhaps a little more carefully modulated than Black Christmas, which I know you did not find to be a satisfying watch. Um, and it's also kind of like a Cliff's Notes about the history of witchcraft in Spain. Um, you know, set in the caves of this town we're talking about, Zagaramurdi, um, which is often referred to as the Cathedral of the Devil, uh, which I'm sure the local tourism board is all over. Um, <laughs> you know, it's in the Basque region of the country where the most notorious witchcraft trials were carried out during the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and although the number of women, men, and children who were actually put to death doesn't quite compare to other witch craze persecutions in Europe, it is sort of the biggest event of its kind in terms of the number of people investigated. Because by the end, almost 7,000 thousand cases had been examined by the Inquisition. Um, and even today, the village of Zagaramurdi is home to a witchcraft museum, uh, and the town now celebrates the witches with a feast by the cave on the summer solstice and the lighting of spectacular bonfires. Um, and also, the film makes great use of one of the most powerful and evocative traditional Basque songs, which is Baga Biga Higa by uh, Michael Laboa. And uh, Laboa created the song using an, an onomatopoeic Basque traditional poem, which had very little meaning, but is very odd sounding and sort of linked conceptually to the idea of Basque witches, uh, which began a legend that this piece of music was actually some kind of uh, an enchantment or summoning him that would be used by actual witches in Zagaramurdi. Bradford, that was an exceptional amount of homework that you did, and you came up with so many fun facts, and I'm thrilled to know them. Um, tell me more, Sintra. I just wanted to add that my flamenco instructor is a Basque, and she's a total bruja. <laughs> I love that. And of course she is. Hola, concha de tu madre. That sounds like the fire drill. Everybody, please leave the building single file. Do not walk, do not run. And should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, you have been warned. We got some spoilers coming up, people. Now that we're good to go, let's head directly to study hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, on a roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both, Mr. Winnick, Ms. Wilson, just to establish where we are on the playing field, give me a basic yes or no response. Did you no. like this film? <laughs> Sintra? Yes. Eric? 
Uh, not really. No. Hmm. Then let's get into it. We're going to do honor roll first, and we'll do it round robin style. And uh, we can each name the scenes or moments or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we'll hand out our detention slips. So, Sintra, as our guest, we're going to let you Ah. go first. What is your first nomination to the honor roll? Well, just the general level of feminism that takes place in this movie and the the angle of it where all the men are bitterly complaining and weak and women are terrifying and strong. Um, that really worked for me. And uh, I mean, would you would you like me to list a few yes. specific examples? Yes, yes, please. Um, yeah. I, the one of the scenes that I absolutely loved is where uh, the robbers are in the witch house and they're peering through a doorway and Catalina Bang is massaging a broomstick, as it were, between her legs and kind of enjoying enjoying the ride, as it were. <laughs> 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 but it's 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 not raunchy it's 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 kind of well done there was a line that stood out to me where um catalina bang's mother uh is it tells her what i think is maybe the greatest line in a film ever which is a girl your age should be taking drugs and engaging in coprophilia i believe she also says <laughs> oh yeah they did mention a lot of different things yeah bestiality yeah um, fisting drugs is like the tamest thing on that list but it did, it did thrill me just because you know if you know moms they're they're utterly freaked out about that stuff so and i, yeah. and I liked that um for women um that jealousy uh, especially for the Catalina Bang character, turns into this murderous, psychotic rage, which which kind of uh, spreads out, you know, like on the ground, sort of like a like an explosion. Just gets it, it's it's oh yeah. There was something I really related to about that. Yes. I mean, I do think that there is a lot uh, about this film that is really kind of just about the the awesome and destructive power of a woman's anger. I, yeah, that's that's one of the things I, I truly liked about. It. I mean, you know, but the but the movie is well balanced. I mean, it's clearly not a you know just a straight feminist movie because the men are weeping and complaining the whole time about what monsters women are. I mean, it's rare, I think, that you see sort of a buddy road trip movie that delves so deeply into men's insecurities, but I'll yeah. take it. I'll take it. Well put. Um, Eric, uh, give us an honor roll nomination. Yeah, um, this is a hard thing for a film like this, but I have to say, to me, everybody really appears to be in the same film. And that is, again, with a film as as sort of wide-ranging as this with so much going on, um, that's not the easiest thing in the world. So tonally, I think they all got the memo. Even the guys in the car at the beginning, um, you know, they know this is a black comedy. And while they're supposed to be sort of the straight men, so to speak, they're really a bunch of idiots and they play it like idiots. Um, the only comparison that I could come up with for De La Iglesia in this film anyway is, is Taika Waititi especially a character like Luis, who seems perfectly content to kind of live under a toilet, reading his Zane Grey novels. I mean, that to me feels what like something... What a weird detail. I felt like Waititi and Igle- De La Iglesia are kind of 
two peas in a pod. Yeah, I can I, see that. I would agree with you there. I mean, I think that um, you know he. I I feel, and I mean, I know Eric, you're not the biggest fan of witching and bitching, but I mean, I do think there is something to Iglesias being able to to kind of balance all of these disparate elements. These mm. these four different films and and mm-hmm. yield something that to me is uh cinematically satisfying and thoroughly enjoyable yeah again i i'm this is an honor roll totally i am, yeah. have nothing but admiration that he was able to you know corral this cast and get everybody on the same page so you know props to alex well, now and let- it should be said that the role of the ex-wife was extremely well performed. Yes. I thought, like the, the the ex-wife is a nurse, and when we first see her, she's rolling an old man in a hospital bed, and she keeps hitting the wall and jarring the <laughs> old man because she's also on the phone, and she's in. It's a. I I, I found her believable as a mother. Not only as a mother, but like a a woman who is, I think, sort of continually put in a bad spot by her ex-husband, you know? Yeah, precisely. She's like, she's had enough of men and what they need. And uh, she is, you know, I mean, I I have every confidence that if it had been a, a frail old woman in the bed, she she would not have been conducted so vigorously to her next destination, you know? <laughs> it still would have been funny, though. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to throw out an honor roll nomination. Um, this is a little unusual for me because I usually focus on very small sort of moments or details, but I want to give an honor roll nomination for the entire ritual sequence with that insane orgy of witches, some of the are nuns, others are goth chicks and punk rock girls and hipsters and some are old women and they're all done up for this, you know, pageant that's taking place on this particular evening. Uh, Marichu is throwing glitter and Grassi is sort of flying in this ecstasy of St. Teresa moment around the inside of the cave. I think the entire thing from start to finish, including uh, the performance of Baga Biga Higa, is just sort of, um, uh, you know, it just builds and builds and builds in the most fabulous way uh, with completely unexpected results uh, that I think just keeps your jaw in your lap the entire time. So that is my first honor roll nomination. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you can. You can actually have an honor roll about this film without mentioning the enormous CGI Venus of Willendorf. God, she's so filthy. That's what I loved about it. I mean, it's like the CGI is deliciously rendered only because, like, this creature who looks like this gigantic two-building large Venus of Willendorf, you know, throwing these like school bus-sized tits around. And and she's filthy. She lives in the ground. And so, you know, she turns around and her ass is filthy. And, you know, she's her feet are disgusting. And it just, I, I, I liked it. I also really liked that the men were being crucified while wearing dunce caps. Yes. I mean, they're all done up like, um, like, like uh, martyrs, you know, like, or like, like um, bad little boys. Yeah. 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 I'll go to my number two. Um, this film looks great um you had point you mentioned this earlier but um the cinematography is pretty extraordinary in this film and from the jump 
the scene in which Ava is on a motorcycle riding to that yes. sort of Macbeth style meeting in the beginning, the use of filters and lenses in this film is really well handled. I love the use of dual coloration in the house um, with certain people or objects bathed in this kind of icy cold blue green light and others being in full color at that one point they open a window and just the leaves that blow in are colored um i thought that was really cool the special effects are good uh from the walking on the ceiling i loved that it was really seamlessly integrated to of course the arrival of the venus oh you know the other thing that i really loved um i'm, I'm sorry if you weren't finished but uh, no, I'm, I'm done I, be, I really love the relationship between the protagonist bank robber and carolina bang because uh her emotions are so oversized and terrifying and i feel like that's how all men perceived female emotion <laughs> as being completely dangerous and irrational and overwhelming yeah, I would be inclined to agree with you. I mean, clearly that is uh, that is the intention of the filmmaker, you know, to put those mm-hmm. things in opposition, which I think is great. Yeah, and they look like a bunch of punks, too. It's great. It roundly heckles both sexes well. And, you know, Sintra, I think to that end, you know, that, that while the male gaze is certainly a thing in this film, Right. I mean, we're seeing a lot of what we experience from the point of view of these men. I think it could mm-hmm. probably be argued that they're only seeing what the women want them to see, you know, at the sort of like direction of these witches. They are seeing through cracks. They're seeing Carolina Bang with her uh, frog venom and her broomstick in the moment that you talked about earlier, you know, but it's not that they are spying or illicitly peering they're sort of only seeing what they're allowed to see yeah yeah they're allowed a certain voyeurism it seems i mean i i did like that as soon as they sort of cross over the border into the witch town they are pretty much under control of of the witches that's that does seem to be a pervasive theme yeah can i can i give my second honor roll nomination yeah, I'm going to give this one, this This is sort of a big, broad stroke, but I'm going to nominate the dramaturgy and authenticity and attention to detail. Um, mm. You know, the, the ritual scenes were filmed in the actual witch caves of Zagara Murdi. Um, oh my God, really? Yes. And, you know, Sintra, when you were talking about like the cops and their dunce caps, you know, that's like how heretics would have been paraded out during the Inquisition. Um, Ooh. And, you know, the use of that great, that great song by Michael Laboa, Baga Biga Higa. And uh, I mean, even the, um, the detail in the opening and closing credits, which are filled with occult symbology and imagery, but it's also showing this kind of mashup of portraits of women who were not only represented as witches, but also as powerful women or women just who, powerful yeah who, or who were threats to um the sort of male 
establishment, you know? I mean, and there's pictures of Frida Kahlo. Exactly. In there, and, and like and, Lucretia and Garbo and Lucretia and Borgia Dietrich. and Dietrich, exactly. Betty Davis. I mean, there are some female serial killers in there, but then we also have like Angela Merkel and Margaret Thatcher, you know? Um, and Angela Merkel looks like a female serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say? You may just say. Um, all right, let's uh, let's keep it going. Sintra, give us a third honor roll nomination. I, I liked this one line where where when everything is about to when everything is erupting into that climax in the caves, somebody turns to somebody and says, "God is a woman, and they can't stand it." And she says, talking about yeah, men. Graciana. That's yeah. that's like her big her big line to the whole crowd. You know, obviously this this film is is many different things. It's a heist film. It's a buddy movie. It's a road trip movie. It's a comedy and it's a horror film. But, uh, and Eric, I'm very curious to know your thoughts on this. Is this folk horror? Ha! You know, we've got an isolated location. We've got a tight knit group of people into whose midst interlopers are kind of introduced and they have this crazy experience that's totally foreign to them and their belief systems. Oh, okay. I'm going to challenge this really quick because I mean, uh, say when I think of folk horror, I think of a movie like the witch, you know, where there is like a small kind of hermetic little group of rural backwoods people who then, or a movie like Midsummer, where there's like a collective mania, where there's a frenzy or like a kind of group hysteria that happens. Whereas I felt like there wasn't so much a group hysteria at the end. It's like a very deliberate ecstasy, an ecstatic event, you know? Yeah. I did. As opposed to a, as opposed to a delusion, you know, something. That's an important yeah. distinction to make, um, Eric. What, what, what side of that argument do you fall on? I mean, I think you you're right in that it does fit some of the traditional definition of folk horror. It's just so hard for me to sort of square this film with you know the the more traditional folk horror films like the one Sintra mentioned, um, The Witch and and Midsommar, even The Wicker Man. Um, you know, or Blood on Satan's Claw, Witchfinder General. It's it's because it's such a hodgepodge, you know, and it's it's so many different things that it would it would be maybe like you could isolate one section of the film and say that this is folk horror like, but it, but I would not say that this is a, a folk horror film. Okay, all right. Um, should we uh, should we continue, Eric? You got a number three. <laughs> Yeah, I just have one more. I just want to hand it to um, Maura and and Pavez, who are so good in their roles. I mean, they don't exactly run away with the film. Um, They're very much part of an ensemble. But I think the two of them are clearly the standouts here. I mean, they they just throw it all out there. And um, they are such a joy to watch. All right. Uh, you know, I, my, my third and final honor roll nomination is for the really committed and I think totally delightful performances 
almost across the board. And I think especially um, with the ladies you just singled out, um, it's, it's clear even if you don't speak the language that they are speaking and you're relying on subtitles, oh, yeah. the comedy of their performances reads so clearly even in a foreign language. They're so expressive. It, their faces, their eyes, um, you almost could turn the sound off and still know what they're saying. And I think that's the mark of a truly remarkable performance. Um, and, you know, I mean, as a little sort of side note, uh, I, I think there must be an homage uh, to, you know, the, the classic 80s adventure film, The Goonies, um, <laughs> in when little Sergio, who is, is trying to flag down cars by the roadside and he's ignored by his mother, and then also the cops who are pursuing his mother. And he flags down the truck that's being driven by uh, Marichu and uh, the, the old man with Marty Feldman eyes. And that is basically a direct visual analog to the moment in The Goonies when Chunk escapes from the Fratellis and he flags down a car that happens to be driven by the Fratellis. I think if you were to watch those scenes side by side, you would see more than a little coincidence. Detention, after school, both of you. And you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. So now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Sintra, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you feel deserves detention? Okay, I have to say that by and large, I really enjoyed this movie, but it does, I, I kind of agree with the critic who we read at the beginning, who said that it leads to this frenzy that's just kind of overstimulating. And I, I've watched the movie twice now, and I have no idea how it ends. Uh, because I think I just get so uh, overstimulated <laughs> by it that I, I actually had no idea how it turned out. I'm going to jump in there and hand out a detention slip for something that I think makes what happens at the end perhaps a little unsatisfying or that, that makes me question some choices. Can we and also be clear about which ending we're talking about? Well, I mean, I think we're talking about the the scene in the cave, right? That entire well, sort of... the magic show the, is the ending, though. Right. So, I mean, Sintra, are you talking about the magic show? I or don't are you even about... remember the magic show, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I think I completely spaced so, well, out. So, what Eric is talking about is at the very end, we see everybody sort of assembled in an auditorium. And little Sergio is on stage doing, like, a school talent show where he's oh, yeah. doing... Okay. The zigzag lady trick with a little a little girl. Oh, yeah, and he's and it's bloody. Yes. And he's actually saw, yeah. Okay, I remember now. Um, but I, I mean, unto what though? 
Right. But I mean, just to be clear, you you in your critique are talking about like the conclusion of the film proper and not the epilogue in the talent show. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know how they got away from the witches or what happened to them or, you know, whether the main characters got their money or, um, yeah, there's all kinds of things I don't know. Didn't care for the most part. Right. Because it was uh, mm. it was it was quite entertaining. But if I mean if I'm if I'm gonna make complaints, it's sort of like well, it's got to be clear even to someone like me who has terrible ADD. Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I I think my detention slip kind of piggybacks on yours and maybe asks a question that I would be curious to untangle, which is, um, I'm gonna fault it for the fact that. What seems to happen at the end is that the presence or even the acknowledged presence of a single man in the cave during the ritual is enough to distract this sort of all-powerful female goddess from doing what she has unearthed herself and come forth to do. And, you know, are, are we sort of meant to read that character as being literally man-hungry, which seems Ooh. a little bit... Um, pejorative maybe in its attitude um and sort of what exactly is her weak spot because it seems to be that it's her vanity and sort of in exposing her true face to the world she's weakened somehow which i don't love you know i'm talking about the venus Okay. I mean, I think that she was momentarily distracted by Sergio's father. Like when he, are you talking about the moment where he goes, "Papa"? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and 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 the Venus gets all discombobulated and and crazy. But I mean, man, hungry. I like it, but I'm not not quite grokking it. Okay. Um. And you know, I mean, I I also think that uh, you know that that whole sequence has um, has really similar elements to Mother of Tears, which is Dario Argento's third installment in his Three Mothers film series. Um, mm. After Suspiria and Inferno, um, he made Mother of Tears, which is you know a bunch of witches in the catacombs under Rome, and they're all sort of having this orgiastic ecstatic experience but i think this one in witching and bitching is good as opposed to in mother of tears which is basically ah. terrible yeah is it is it worth seeing mother of tears i love argento yeah i love argento it's worth seeing if you want to be a completist but i think you'll probably have more problems from a feminist perspective with mother of tears than you might with witching and bitching the, the 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 whole ending the the you know ecstatic crucifixion and the unveiling of the huge goddess lady and you know and the 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 weird thing they do with the kid where the Venus of Willendorf swallows him whole and then kind of rebirths him in in a sort of bloody shower from her underparts and then and then they make him the man who will destroy all men, and they call him an androgene. Yes. And, stuff like that. and so you, you kind of don't get the sense that the son 
was real changed in any particular way when he's doing the magic show. I mean, you would you would think I mean that he would have some more allegiance to the witches at the end. Though, I mean, they oh. do also call him their Trojan horse, which I kind of love. Yeah. You know, like something, like someone that flies under the radar, but is going to unseat whatever it is that they seek to unseat, which obviously is uh, a Judeo-Christian patriarchy. Oh, exactly. I would love to see Sergio's Revenge as a sequel. <laughs> um, Eric, give us a detention slip. You know, I I actually have a question before I, I give you my first. And I was it's just this just occurred to me. Bradford, in the magic show at the end, do you think he actually cuts the girl in half and is the witches are sort of or at least Ava is sort of helping him put the girl back together? No. I think he really cuts the girl into thirds, but um, I think it's his uh, new powers having been baptized oh. in the the mm. bloody wine tub underneath Venus of Willendorf's chair. I mm-hmm. think after he's gone through that experience, if Louise me kind of explains to Jose that he's going to be swallowed and if he survives, he will come out changed. Okay, because I was like, is somebody aiding in the magic there? Because the little girl, when she comes out of that cabinet, vomits immediately. She's and, she's not quite put back together right. You know, I, and she's also covering her face, which I, yeah. I was a little confused by. But okay, I think I think that helps. Okay. It is really funny that she staggers off yes. drunk or yeah. hurt or something. Yes. I mean, yeah. you know. well, well, it's one of those few times when child abuse is funny. It's it's <laughs> it, it's one. It was very confusing to me because I I was like, is there some magic involved? And you just confirmed that yes, there probably is. Okay, not that it works entirely. Um, so I am not sure what De La Iglesia means for us to think of the three main bros, Jose, Tony, and Manuel. I'd like to think that he's making fun of them and their chauvinistic attitudes toward women, but they sort of become heroes in the second half. And Jose even gets the girl at the end. Now, we've all seen films in which the criminals become victims and are punished for their attitudes or their transgressions. But here, I feel like the dudes are established as douchebags who talk shit about women, and there are no real consequences for that. They're they're all happy at the end, apparently having made tons of money from the gold, including the cops. And hmm. I was a little bit like, what are we meant to think of these guys? Are they are they assholes? Are they how are we meant to see them as the audience? You know, I I think that's really interesting. I think I think that um, I think I think that the the little cute comment that they're making at the end is like, yeah, men are assholes and dirtbags and douchebags and they're dumb, and women are terrifying and crazy and witch-like and demonic. But you know, at the end, mm. we all have to love each other or something. Yeah, you could be right. You could be right. Um, Go ahead. You know, I I don't read them as misogynist necessarily. I read them as um, damaged by their past 
relationships. You know, well, I, I think well, as since I'm a, a chauvinist, you know, there's such a fine line between you know damaged and, well, but and I, utter douchebaggery. I, I, I don't think they're all necessarily saying terrible things about women. I mean, Tony, are you kidding? Oh. The first twenty minutes, all the all the dialogue is terrible things about women. Well, you see, Tony is Tony, also just Tony's a total sleazebag too. I mean, just the way he hits on Ava is just like. Well, yes, he is a sleazebag, but he is talking throughout the entire thing about how he feels completely emasculated by the success of his girlfriend, you know, um, that he can't keep up with her in any, you know, in any category. He can't get it up with her either, apparently. Yeah, it's proof of douchebaggery. Well, okay. Um I mean, I guess I would also ask sort of at the at the very end of the film, you know, what exactly are they running from when the ritual is concluded? That is so interesting. You should mention that, Bradford, because I had uh, the same question. You know, there's like um, a lot of smoke coming from inside the mm-hmm, cave, but mm-hmm. what's what's the source? Is there really well, any danger? You know, like- it's also it's also daylight when they get outside. I mean, it's bright sunshine. Yeah, um, and it's been nighttime, right? You know, really up to the point where they got in the cave, and so I was a little confused by that too because they're running. They have the gold. They're holding it in a black bag between them. The, everybody's gotten away. Nobody's dead, except maybe some witches who got stepped on. And then it fades to black. And the next thing we know, we're in that auditorium. Yeah, okay, I got I got another one. Go for it. I got another detention slip. Okay. I really resent how Carolina Bang is dressed at the end of the movie. Oh, my God. All through oh the beginning of the God. movie, she's, she's in, in you know, leather cat suit. It looks spectacular. Oh, my God. I'm so going to agree with you, but keep going. Oh, and then at the end, she looks like, you know, kind of a middle class oh. trophy wife, you know, in a, in a sweater set. She looked very Ann Taylor, and I resented it. Bradford, shall I go to number two, or do you want to? Actually, I remembered what I was going to say before. There are no consequences for the bad actions that result from the robbery at the top of the film. You know, at the at the very start, when we first meet the the three generations of women witches, uh, you know, they're all sort of at the roadside. Uh, Eva has just shown up on her motorcycle and uh, there, there is the, the sort of prophecy, right? Um, they talk about a bear and a tree and a yellow sponge, a mouse and a star and a naked man with a beard and a green soldier and a man on a white horse with a green light on his head and the sun and the gold and all of these things. When that prophecy starts to reveal itself through the um, through the heist, through the big robbery, it is not without violence. SpongeBob is mowed down. Uh, SpongeBob kills a cop. Um, there seem to be some pedestrians who are caught in crossfire in kind of spectacular fashion, and usually. In a film like this, the bad guys get what's yeah. coming to them 
yeah. for the for their past transgressions, right. and right. no that's, one gets punished for anything in this film. Yeah, that, I like that. That's why I like that's that why lot. I said you know we've all seen films which the criminals become victims and are punished right. for their that, attitudes. That is what made me think of that. Right, right. They're, they they're not punished at all. And, not at um, all. In fact, they seem to be rewarded, which in are. a very specific kind of philosophical way, kind of relates to to the tenets of witchcraft, which you know are are basically like do whatever you want, but don't harm anybody. You know, do what thou wilt. That is the whole of the exactly. law. Well, that's satanic. Well, yeah, I mean, but you know, we could probably draw a pretty clear direct line from. Satanism to witchcraft, especially as it's contextualized in this film. Uh, you know, I didn't really see it as satanic. I mean, it's like that—that's—that's that's a much darker world, I think, than the witches in that Basque little town. Sure. Well, this whole movie is kind of gleefully amoral. Yes. I mean, and I think that 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 you know stems from the you know repressed female goddess you know bitch goddess anger worship thing like i I think that everybody sort of wins in the end because they've all sort of embraced that well but i mean i think that's sort of where i was going before from a like philosophical perspective about you know do what thou wilt because you know the the end result of their getting involved with these witches and doing these you know, not exactly great things is that they live happily ever after, which, you know, I think Sintra said it really well about a kind of gleeful amorality. Um, and there, there's no real, there's no real judgment made on these people by the filmmakers or by each other. And they all get to kind of live happily and wealthily ever after. And, and monogamously, which I also resent, <laughs> keep teasing that out oh just at the very end where he gets the girl i mean it's like he's able this mm-hmm. weak stupid mm-hmm. man mm-hmm. who's you know a bank robber who's escaping and shitty stolen car gets to go out with the hottest hot as balls woman on earth which is carolina bank who's a witch who has power she's you know exponentially more powerful than he is and yet she lowers herself at the end to be, you know, the concubine of this dude. Well, I, I, I actually think you're hitting on something that that is also a, a, a real confusing aspect of this film, which is the two. Well, it's a real part of life for women too. I mean, you really end up dating a lot of schmoes. So I have mm-hmm. two more um, slips, and um, let me get through this, and then you guys can can respond to it. Uh, Curious yeah. to your as to your response. So, this film isn't exactly horror. It isn't exactly a heist film. It isn't exactly about toxic masculinity, and it isn't exactly about fathers and sons. It's all of these things. Yeah, complemented by this sort of snappy Tarantino esque dialogue, which I think is most of it is the titular sort of bitching that goes on. Um, for me, there's just too many things in this film that didn't make sense. And I felt like De La Iglesia doesn't really give a shit. He's just like, look, guys, I just make the film. You make sense of it. And yes, I know it's satirical and a dark comedy. And we're just supposed to sit back and enjoy it. But even dark comedies have to connect the dots. few examples. 
So Sergio's mom, Sylvia, is captured and has this sort of sudden interest in becoming a witch. And I can't tell if she's at Sergio's performance in the end, but she doesn't really seem interested in being a mom anymore. The sudden love story between Ava and Jose, for me, came out of nowhere. One minute, she's torturing him and the other bros, and the next, she's suddenly falling for Jose and having a seizure on the floor. And then finally, there's the whole ritual at the end. And, And let me see if I have this straight. The reason they're able to do it is because the guys brought the gold rings and there's enough trauma embedded in the rings to make it possible for the Venus to come back and somehow they're going to replace all the men with... Okay, you know what? You've lost me. Say what? You've lost me and that scene took forever. Well, okay. Um... Um, you you better go, Bradford. I'm a, I'm kind of I'm digesting that a bit. I'm okay. I'm mulling. So, uh, all right. So, point for point, Eric. Your first point was that Alex de la Iglesia has too much going on and doesn't tie it up. I do think that all of the threads come together at the beginning of the dinner scene. We have the the guys who are bound to their chairs at the table. Uh, we have Sylvia and the two the two cops uh, crawling around in the ceiling. We have all of the witches coming together, um, and, and we have Sergio. And all of these things are kind of brought into the the a kind of narrative eye of the needle. All of these threads kind of come through at the same time. And kind of allow us to launch into the third act. Um, you know, I mean, I think depending upon how you read it, this, the second act is kind of the briefest in the film. But there is a great moment when uh, when when Grassi is standing on top of the table and addressing the witches and addressing the men uh, and, and addressing the police and Sylvia where there's like this great orchestral moment and it feels like the tempo is set for the rest of the film starting at that moment, or that is where kind of the stopwatch begins to, to tick down, you know, the quickening. Yes. As it were. Yes, absolutely. I don't Um, actually see how that addresses my issue. I mean, I don't disagree with what you just said. Because it brings all of the, the narrative, um, threads and devices that we've seen up to that point into the same space to interact with each other and repel us toward this crazy conclusion. Okay, so tell me what happens with Sylvia then, because she's captured, she drinks the blood, her eyes kind of roll back. And then as as far as we know, she's she's basically a witch. Sylvia Well she delivers she delivers her son to the Venus of Willendorf monster to be devoured. Right. And she, up to that point, she's been doing, she's been pursuing him. She's been terrified that he might be hurt, that there might be something wrong. And she's suddenly like, as you said, delivering her son to this monstrosity. And I just, I, I didn't understand the turnaround with that character. <laughs> she was turned. She drank all that black frog juice. Yeah. Um, and I mean, okay, I so think she's, she's just, so she's not interested in his well being anymore. Is that what you're saying? 
I think I think I think they turned her. They 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 fed her enough frog juice to make her awake. And I think she okay. was kind of a willing participant in that. I kind of feel like Sylvia has had enough. She's had enough of the stress that these men have brought into her life, and she right. But she hasn't had enough of being a mother. She she's hasn't been given a new chance. She's been given a new chance. Okay, she's okay, just, Eric. To me, but maybe just... she's had more frog juice than being a mother, and she's been turned. You know. Okay. Right. Maybe the frog juice is more satisfying. You know something? Than... I mean, it's <laughs> just it's just a hairpin turn for me, and it it didn't work. And the second point I had was the even Jose or Ava and Jose, whatever, their relationship. Please explain to me how that love story comes together. Because to me, it's like one minute, she's just this, you know, shrieking banshee who is do anything to these men, including pulling one of their teeth out. And the next minute, she's like having butterflies over Jose, who's kind of a loser. Well, I mean, I think women do that, dude. Women do that all the time, every day. But you yourself said it, Sintra. You were like, not that guy, not her. She's cool at that point in the film anyway. She wouldn't fall for that guy. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, but okay. At the same time, I, I think that that's a little piece of Veritas because I see pretty women walking with gorillas all the time. You know, I mean, there's. Thank you, Joe Jackson. Uh, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a thing, you know, it's like women date below their station all the time. And that's that I, I thought was kind of a stupid. Okay, so you felt like sometimes... that Ava would have done that. You felt that that character would have done that. I didn't want her to, but okay. I sort of understood why she did. I mean, you know, he was cute. Okay. I, I think it's like a, a weird love at first sight kind of thing. Obviously, her her family does not appreciate what she's doing uh, to the extent that when she says that she's in love with him, they bury her face down in a coffin so that she can't claw her way out. You know, it's it. Yeah, they, they wanted to not do that. And I also think that there are some subtle indications that uh, that that she is falling for Jose before she comes out and says it. You know, and and there's also the humorous aspect of the fact that they essentially have the sum total of a long-term relationship from meeting cute to despising each other that transpires over the course of a very short and action-packed scene. That's true. And then at the end, she's a soccer mom who has ostensibly renounced all of her, you know, supernatural witch powers in order to, you know, make jello for the PTA. Right. Which I, you know, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that she gave up power to become this guy's woman. But, it, but mean, you know, Sintra, it, that it's also interesting that that the timeline of that kind of character change is also super compressed because I think the title at the bottom of the screen, right before we go into the magic show sequence, is something like one month later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah it is. so it's it is. it's all really compressed in I think a, a, a fairly um, pointed way. Yeah, her hair is also not as cool. It's so not as cool. She doesn't even have the shaved no, side anymore. No. I think she's even wearing pearls. It made me want to. Yeah, just to to bring it home here, the the ending, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I just don't think Daly Iglesias knew how to land this plane. As we talked about, everyone escapes from the cave with the bag and the boy. They're running away from the witches. 
Everything fades to black. It's a month later. We're at Sergio's magic performance. And two things about this scene bug me. Um, one is what we've been talking about, which is um, Ava's more conventional look, talking about how the psychologist said not to smother the kid. It's like she just stepped right into the role of typical mother. And the other mm-hmm. thing is the two inspectors are also the, the cops are in the audience for the show, apparently having cashed in some gold as well. And for all I know, having like left their jobs because, you know, they've just broken the law. And they're making plans to go to a musical, which to me feels like shorthand for saying, oh, look, they are gay after all. And I was like, oh, do we need that? Didn't we just have a the sort of profession of love from one to the other? Can't we just have that? Well, it's just that his gay feelings were reciprocated if they're going together to go see Jersey Boys. I think it's the Lion King. I'm... I, but I, I think, think you're right about the Lion King. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, we're, we, we are not experiencing any kind of um, reality with regard to how any of these people interact with each other or the situations in which they are interacting. Um, so before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess, get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, expend some energy, maybe have a snack or two. Sintra, did you yeah. did you or do you have a favorite recess snack growing up? Yeah, I really liked those astronaut sticks, which I mean, which is a terrible indication of uh, my advanced age. But um, what were those? They were these things. That, they were supposed to be like astronaut food. Mm. And uh, they were around probably in the late seventies, and it was it was like a space food snack, and it was and you opened it up, and it was kind of like a sort of a rubbery tootsie roll, cocoa powder, protein thing. It was not related to Tang, was it, Sintra? Well, I mean, it it kind of was spiritually related to Tang <laughs> in that they invoked Cape Canaveral right. to sell both items. Space age food. All right, kids, let's take a break and then we'll come back and do the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with D and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. He's very popular, Ian. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed only with us. It's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for most disturbing scene named for uh, maybe one of the more deranged and disturbed directors around, Gaspar Noé, um, known for such films as Irreversible, Enter the Void, Love 3D, 
Vortex, and Climax. And to start us off, I'm going to ask Mr. Lorik if he would give us his Gaspar Noe Award. Sure. Uh, I'm going to give my Gaspar Noe Award to all of the things that happened to Mr. Badajoz in the scene in which they're all tied to the chairs, including, but not limited to, dentistry, having his... (laughs) having his fingers cut off, being strangled, and the old ear severance, uh, which is then later fed to Sylvia while she's becoming a witch. It's very interesting you should say that, Mr. Lork, because I too had El Hombre de Barajos as my Gaspar Noe Award winner, um, although I am just going to uh, zoom in on that tooth extraction because... It did seem very painful. Sintra, what do you have for the most disturbing moment? I found the really disturbing moment was uh, the Venus de Milo's filthy body. <laughs> that really did it for me. Like that, when she nasty. turns around and you see the crack of her ass and it's oh. all black and it's oh. just like, oh God. That was nasty. That was nasty. And I love that you just called it the Venus de Milo, by the way. Oh, I did. Sorry. I, yeah. No, no, no. I love it. It's even funny. It's better. It's better if it's the Venus de Milo. It's true. <laughs> Thank you. So for our next two awards, we're going to bend the rules a little bit because when you think about it, Except for those witches that get trampled, no one really dies in this film. So we're going to change the rules a little bit on the Ellen Ripley and Michael Myers Award. Um, So just to start us off, the Ellen Ripley Award, of course, is named for Sigourney Weaver's character in the Alien cinematic franchise. It's traditionally the character that most deserves to live, but does not. But because nobody dies in this film, we're going to just make this the character that most deserved to live in this film and uh, maybe not have such a rough time of it. And for this award, I I would like Sintra to start us off. Well, I'm all about Carolina Bang in this movie. I I really, except at the end. Except at the end. I mean, I thought that she was like tremendously empowered, fun, sexy, got it all going for her, kind of has some mood disorders, but what woman doesn't? I, so you're going with Ava. I'm going with Ava. Um, Mr. Lorick, Ellen Ripley. Um, You you know, for my Ellen Ripley, I'm a little bit on the fence and I think it's either Marichu or Grassi. Um, it's not clear until the very last little moment in the epilogue whether or not they in fact do live, but those kitties seem to have nine lives. Uh, so I think I'm going to give it to Marichu. You know, I have to say, um, I'm going to give it to Sergio. He has a rough go of it in this film. He's digested by the Venus de Milo. He's expelled out of <laughs> expelled out of some orifice. I couldn't tell, but he's he's really blossoming by the end. You know, he's really come into his own, and and so I I, I love that kid. He's a scrappy kid. So that brings us, of course, to the Michael Myers Award uh, for the character that uh, most deserved to die. Usually does. In this film, nobody dies, so we're just going to make it the character that most deserved to die but doesn't. Um, Michael Myers, of course, the uh, legendary uh, slasher uh, of the Halloween series. The sweet, Um, gentle hero that John Carpenter knew we needed and gave to us. 
That's right. And uh, I will start us off on this one. And I'm going to say it's hard to choose, but I'm going to give it to Tony because he's a meathead who resents his girlfriend because why? Because she's great in the sack and he's a total sleaze. Bradford. I'm going to give it to the Judeo-Christian patriarchy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to give it to the cops. Oh, both of them? Just because they're cops. Yeah. Fucking, <laughs> fucking pigs. Uh, Bradford, are you... Is that your... Addressing the patriarchy. Is that your actual award, Bradford? That is my actual award. Okay, so the Michael Myers Award is to the Ju- Judeo-Christian patriarchy? Yes. Okay, and... And Sintry, I agree. I think Sint- that's a great choice. And Sintra, you feel the cops deserve to die? Because they're I cops? I generally feel that... Yes. Okay, got it, got it. Just want to make sure I got that. I mean, I'm just saying, well, there was nobody truly repellent in the entire movie. I mean, there, it, was, it was, you know, fairly lighthearted. Agreed. Let's go to the Ken Russell Award. Um, so this is the award that we give to the most Baroque screen moment, uh, named for the uh, famed director of Bradford's all-time favorite film, the lair of the white worm. Um, oh, okay. And, and my all-time favorite film, The Devils. Um, no, actually, they're yeah. not our fa- they're not our favorite films, but we do love them. And and Russell knew a baroque moment when he saw it. Um, Sintra, uh, when he most saw fr- it in his head and manufactured it on <laughs> celluloid. Yeah, on celluloid. So Sintra, since uh, you know from baroque. Tell us, what was the most Baroque screen moment in Witching and Bitching? Baroque screen moment? Well, it would have to exist in those famous Basque caves of witchcraft, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, probably that scene when uh, the uh, giant Venus creature is about to eat the boy, and the yeah. boy is like trying to avoid the creature's mouth. And, uh, you know, you can see through the creature's fingers, his father freaking out. And uh, that's probably the one that sticks with me. That is that is a great scene. And Um, I actually um, was I'm going to concur with you on that. Uh, I do think the Venus is uh, gets my award. But for me, it's the entrance of the Venus. There's a, a veritable chatter and this sort of murmur that goes through the crowd and i think you hear these footsteps and you don't get more baroque than the entrance of a giant monster size huge breasted figurine who steps on people indiscriminately it reminded me a little bit of the entrance bradford of the stay puff marshmallow man in ghostbusters Yeah. yeah i'm with you yeah, I mean, I think that there are a handful of great old references that uh, Alex de la Iglesia gives us in this film, and I would expect that that uh, was not lost on him. What do you have for the Ken um, Russell, sir? Well, you know, I I think that there is something in uh, the moment when Jose finds himself underneath the bathroom of the restaurant. He's run through the tunnels, and he meets... Oh, yeah. Javier Botet's character, who is also Eva's brother, Luis Miguel, um, whose skin obviously is peeling off from, quote unquote, the damp 
and maybe also from the bacterial load growing under a public toilet. Where oh, he's, he's like, disgusting. He's, he's disgusting, disgusting, but he's kind of like a cross between the elephant man and something out of maybe like Janae and Kara's The City of Lost Children, maybe. But I think I'm going to side with you guys. Ultimately, I do think it's the entirety of the ritual scene in the witch caves of Zagaramurdi. Aha, so you're giving it to the entire sequence, as it were. Yeah, I think, I mean, it. Baroque doesn't doesn't start out undecorated. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, Baroque no, is a thing that, that is already something big that somebody has just, you know, put a little bit more gold leaf on top of. And so I think that entire scene that. is just another layer and another layer and another layer of decoration. And I am there for all of it. All right. So um, this brings us to our final award of the evening, the Brad Dourif award for a character that could have been played by Brad Dourif. Um, (laughs) Dourif, of course, the spectacular actor who uh, gave voice to Chucky in the child's play films. He was James Veneman, the Gemini killer in uh, The Exorcist 3. He was Billy Bibbit in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was Pieter de Vries in Lynch's Dune. He was uh, was the preacher in Wise Blood, um, and and so I many love others. Him in wise blood. So many other great performances, but 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 we think of Brad Dourif as an actor who just didn't know when to stop. So, um, <laughs> Bradford Laura, tough one because the performances, even of the witches, were fairly yeah. measured. <laughs> well, yeah, um, uh, I guess Bradford. Uh, what do you got? I'm. I mean, I think. Uh, I, I think that he would have been a great Marty Feldman. Yeah, I think he would have been, been a Marty. great uh, a, a great assistant to Marichu. Um, I, I think he might also have made an excellent Manuel, the cab driver character, uh, played by Jaime Ordonez. Uh, so I, I think he could have very easily fallen into either camp, but I would have loved to see him, uh, you know, salivating for all of those moments that our, our, our pal M- Marty Feldman uh, might have essayed. I would have liked him in drag as one of the witches because there were a couple of witches who were men in drag and I liked that. I yeah, there absolutely kind of cool. were, yes. For me, there's... You know, as we're talking about Brad Dourif, it makes me think, of course, of The Exorcist 3, which we covered last season. And there are moments when the witches are scampering across the ceiling that absolutely make me think of Mrs. Clelia in The Exorcist oh. 3. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But let's hear, uh, who, who do you guys uh, want to designate your Brad Dourif awards to? Sintra. Damn. I mean, well, according to your definition of Brad Durek as like kind of a scenery chewing monster, um, I, uh, I mean, I would have liked to have seen him as the head witch <laughs> in drag. That would have been punchy. That would have which, been great. Which- which one are we talking about, Maritsu, or are we talking Grossi. about... Uh, the one with the white hair. The oh, one Mar- with the big teeth and the white hair. Maritsu. That is Maritsu. Yeah, Maritsu, the yeah. grandmother. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, um, strangely enough, 
Sintra and I are absolutely on the same page. I am going to give it <laughs> to Maritu. I think I he would that. have absolutely driven that one off the cliff, and then <laughs> and, and then he and would have kept, kept going. going. Yes, <laughs> going. Um, but exactly. I am so happy that um, that Maritu's metal dentures have been have been mentioned oh, yeah. tonight. I, I mean, it's a great performance. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, it is. I mean, she dialed that one way the hell up, and oh, yeah. appropriately so. So, um, yeah. So I think Dorif would have done a great job with that. All right, you guys. With that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night. Yes, the final <laughs> exam. Um, and and this is the part of the pod where you guys give us your final letter grades for the semester based on everything that we have heard and seen and discussed about this film tonight. Sintra, would you like to go first and give us a letter grade? I give us a solid B+. Plus. <laughs> All right. Uh, Eric, where do you fall? All right, smack dab in the middle, sir. I am giving this a straight C. No, you're insane. Have you ever seen a film that you've liked? Yes, I I am insane. I am completely and utterly insane, and I'm still giving it a C. Well, you know what? So is this movie. It is bonkers. It is off the wall. It is five different movies all in one. It is the Ron Popeil of horror films from Spain. It is the Ron Popeil. That's right. It slices, it dices, it juliennes, and I'm going to give it an A for absolute enjoyment. You know what? Ah. You're, I think you're giving it an A just to spite me. Just to <laughs> spit in your eye. Yeah, I, I think you, you know what I, I think? look like a woman. I'm right in the middle. Excuse me. I think you had B plus written down, and after I said C, you changed it to an A, didn't you, you scamp? Eric, I pick all of these movies. They are from my personal treasure trove of favorites that I return to again and again. I'm giving this an A. Mm. Hmm. That was that's a B. I plug. know Bradford loves this movie. He yes. is not really. He's it. not really. But he's not really giving it an A. He doesn't but love I this am. movie as much. I as, am. You don't love this movie as much as you say you do. I don't love this movie as much as I love April Fool's Day, to which I have given an A plus. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you out there in the ether loved this episode. And if you did, if you do, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Have a listening party. Bring some fucking space food sticks. And hey, maybe even subscribe. And please, if you like this podcast, start uulating now. Thank you. I I was hoping she would do that. Be sure to check out all 13 hours of season one if you haven't already, as well as the first eight episodes of season two. Because who doesn't have 21 hours of free time? (laughs) But also be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, and on our website, scareupod.com. That's scare, the letter U, and pod.com. Thanks again to our 
fantastic guest, Cintra Wilson. Cintra, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? Oh, well, I'm at, I'm on Twitter a lot at at X-I-N-T-R-A. It's named Cintra with an X instead of a C. <laughs> and um, I have um, a substack, which I am quite proud of. It includes a uh, vocal version of the article and an original oil painting. And it's free. And you can get it at Cintra.substack.com. Cintra, just to be clear oh, on I'm that. Cobra Blanca on Instagram. All right. I love that. Um, Mr. Lorik, where can people find me online? Oh, you can find Eric on Letterboxd or on Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. And you can find Bradford in a dark bar. No, you can also find <laughs> him. You can find him at BradfordLorik.com. Tonight's announcements were by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Sophia Lillis, and Wyatt Olaf. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth, mixed by us into a putrid paella of perfection. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time in the blood-soaked abattoir of the internet's closet of curious conundrums. Scare you. Adios. Adios, amigos. Buena suerte. Buena suerte. Oh, my God. That was madness. Oh, my God.